Hi, my name's Brian, and like most of you, I'm staying at home during the pandemic. To pass the time, I decided to get some of my friends on the record about what they're cooking, how they're doing, and anything else that might be on their minds. Join me on What's Eating You. Today, I'm talking to comedy writer and published New York Times opinion author Ali Asghar. Today, we'll talk diet discipline, the future of New York pizza, and Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide, versus COVID-19. All right, so I'd like to welcome... Ali Asgard to the show, so to speak. I don't know if I can call it that yet, but I really appreciate you joining me. Um, I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll give briefly my sort of experience of how we came to be connected. And that was through a previous guest of What's Eating You, Dan Lee, who I think is a mutual friend. Ali Asgard, I'll let you know, tell uh, everyone how you know Dan Lee. Yeah, well, first, thanks very much for having me on. Great to be with you. Um, how do I know Dan? We, we went to business school in Chicago together for a couple of years. Um, I think we took, the first class we took together was um, business ethics, which was a very good class. And if I recall correctly, we also took a few more classes, including negotiations together. And that class for me stood out, not because of anything I learned, but because we had to do a negotiation of a TV channel sale in Tennessee or something like that. So I did the whole negotiation in character as a Southern gentleman, which meant that every other sentence was, I do declare. Um, I have no idea how the negotiation went, but that's all I recall. That's good stuff. So who came out on top of that negotiation? Uh, I really don't remember. Just the accent, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Key focus. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, so when Dan introduced us, he did so um, via sort of blind text. So I saw your area code and um, I, I guess you saw mine, but he also shared um, a previous podcast I'd sent, introduced me as a podcaster, which I... I not going to claim that, but he uh, actually shared you as a published credentialed New York Times opinion writer. Is that is that right? Yes, yes. I had a piece published in the New York Times opinion pages last Sunday about my experience with uh, Ramadan. So it's Ramadan right now. Uh, Ramadan's about to end um, on Sunday in a couple of days. Um, and so it's about how being in quarantine during Ramadan has unexpectedly been a very positive thing. And so when did you, I guess, when did you start to think about that? I guess you may know, I ask people here what, uh, what they're eating in, in quarantine or cooking in quarantine. And, and I think, you know, the point of Ramadan is obviously <laughs> in, in some, some tension with that, with that concept. Yeah. So as far as the piece goes, um, it wasn't something I had thought of because I'm predisposed to think that my life is incredibly boring and nobody wants to read about me. Uh, one of my friends nudged me to do it about, you know, what is different about Ramadan this year in quarantine versus previous years. It's also a bit different because I've got more family around me, which, you know, as the piece suggests, it's been a very positive thing. It's been a great experience having more family. Though, like it's, It sounds cliche, but it really is the more the merrier. Um, and then you alluded to the food aspect. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a foodie by any means, but when you're fasting for 16 hours a day, which is roughly what it is here in New York, um, you know, food is the most, you know, important thought in your mind when you're eating and when, especially when you're not eating. Uh, and so it becomes something that you look forward to and or, or essentially orient your day around. 
which is a departure from my normal days when I'm not fasting. What, what do you mean by that? Your, what's your normal day kind of like? So because like it, my wife is much more of a foodie, uh, if we check out a new restaurant, it's always driven by her. Um, I'm a lot easier to satisfy. So, you know, I could do mac and cheese three nights in a row. It's fine with me. I am, you know, you could argue that's not very sophisticated. I would agree with that argument. Um, but in Ramadan, when you're, when you're fasting so much, it, you know, it changes the dynamics a bit. It also means that, and this is probably not a good thing, uh, that the discipline you might otherwise exert when it comes to diet kind of goes out the window, at least for me, which is not a good thing. But it, it's also funny because it varies year to year, right? So there's been previous years in Ramadan where I've lost weight because you're not eating 16 hours a day and then you have a small meal. What you find is your appetite shrinks as the month progresses. Um, and so those are the years where I've, where I've lost weight, but you also find months, years where you put on weight because although you're not eating 16, 17 hours a day, if you pig out in the evenings and you have bad stuff, uh, which in many ways is, uh, an unofficial Ramadan tradition, it's not a, a tradition dictated by religion. It's just a cultural tradition people have adopted, uh, that you find yourself putting on weight. So for example, uh, like my parents' generation, Ramadan is um, often associated with, uh, with, with deep fried goods like pakoras. So my family's from South Asia, my family's from India, more specifically. And so pakoras are, you know, big time deep fried Ramadan treat or samosa. Um, and if you, if you gorge on those every day, even just one a day for 30 days, you know, your, your waistline will, will, will change. So it's kind of this balancing act where you, you want to indulge, but you don't really want to indulge too much. Right, overindulgence some restraint. I mean, you would, again, argue that the entire month is a real sort of exercise in restraint and control and focus. And, and yet the, there's this crack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's funny also, because when you're fasting, you feel hungry. So you think, okay, you know what, I'm just going to order everything off the menu. When you're ordering at Grubhub or going to the grocery store, I'm just going to pull every item off the shelf. But by the time the sundown happens, and you open, you're able to open your fast, uh, you might not, you know, your appetite might not be as big as you think it was. Um, particularly if, and this is something I try to do, but I'm not always good at, um, is you, you open the fast, to, it's recommended to open it with a date um, or a glass of water. Uh, and then I try to fill myself up with the good stuff, which is tends to be fruit. So, uh, so that by the time, you know, any, any, any fatty foods are, are presented, your appetite's a bit diminished. It's, you know, that's the thinking easier said than done. And then, you know, it's going to end in a couple of days. So then there'll be no excuse to not exert diet discipline. Well, while you still have the, I guess, while you still have the excuse, I'd be curious. Again, I know you're not a foodie and I know you yourself, as you said, are not a cooker. I'm, that's okay too. What's become a, a sort of preferred meal or one you've looked forward to or one you really enjoy, even if you didn't expect? Yeah. Um, so I think... The thing I really look forward to every night, it, to the extent we have it, because in quarantine, there's no guarantee given, uh, you know, how difficult it is to get groceries, uh, is, uh, you know, chips and dip or chips and hummus uh, as a snack uh, before having the main meal. And then when it comes to the main meal, um, you know, I didn't expect myself enjoying McDonald's so much as I did a couple of nights ago, but that turned out to be a real treat. Um, and it's not really something I would have, th- you know, McDonald's is not some, it's not sophisticated dining. I hope they don't sponsor your podcast. And if they, if they were in the discussion to be a sponsor, they're certainly not now. So my apologies. Um, but something as simple as a filet of fish became uh, a dinner of champions. 
I'm also very lucky, as I alluded, you know, I've got a lot of family around and all of them are much more culinary skilled than I am. And so between my parents and my wife and my sisters, somebody takes the lead in terms of cooking and they're all pretty darn good cooks. Um, and so, you know, it was my, it was not, so I was going to say it's my mom's birthday, but it was, it was Mother's Day a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, my sisters, my wife, they made quiche and that was awesome. Uh, and so it's, it's nice. And, and so what I find is every day I'm like, what's for, what's for iftar, what's for dinner? Uh, much more than I other, otherwise would. And then beyond, between, beyond um, you know, the special events like, uh, like a Mother's Day meal, we typically rely on my dad and his steady stream of Indian cooking. Uh, so that might be ground beef, it might be chicken, uh, usually meat because my dad's old school like that. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it tends to be a typical like Indian meal because we're Indian, but then, you know, it peppered with um, other other cuisines throughout the week. So uh, I like you said this thing about um, you know you'd be like looking forward to you you ask them what's for and and for you there's probably some you know some anticipation you're not deciding you you sort of get to get to receive what's coming at what's the what's the thinking there do they you know are they cooking based on what's available what they you know what they're are they trying new things I'm curious are you a guinea pig for example for recipes and, and food. So I don't feel like this year, this, that's a great question. I don't feel like there's been a ton of experimentation, right? Because you want something reliable. And that's why I find in previous years when mosques were open, the idea of open my fast at the mosque, it's always hit and miss, right? Because what if they serve a dish that you don't like? And that's tough for me because I'm a bit picky. Like I don't like rice, which makes me a bit of a, a weirdo in, in South Asian circles. But if they serve like a biryani dish, like that, that's, that's not something I'm prepared to eat. Unless, you know, there's nothing else to eat, which often is the case. Which, But I try to avoid rice dishes. Um, and so having a, being able to exert a bit more influence, right? Saying, hey, if you're cooking, you've got to do something that everybody's up for. And if you're not, if the main dish isn't something that everybody's up for, you've got to carve out a separate dish for, for, the, you know, for the minority of us, if you like. And that's, that's also part of ordering if it's Grubhub or groceries. Weirdly, my wife and my sister are desperate for chickpeas. They use it to perform, a, are you familiar with a dish called chaat? So I'm probably gonna do a very bad job of describing chaat because I've never made it, but it involves chickpeas, tomatoes, cilantro, a bit of yogurt, and sometimes no. like um, fragmented ch- uh, pita chips. Okay. Uh, so it's, just, it's an appetizer, but chickpeas are, are a crucial ingredient. And so uh, my wife and sister have been ordering chickpeas, but they take forever to turn up. But when they do, it's like the second coming of Christ. And they're finally free to make, to make chart, uh, which is inevitably, it's a, it's a great starter. But it's never the meal, right? So, so the amount of energy that they've spent looking forward to and then celebrating when the chickpeas arrive, it's been weird to me. It's like, what's the big deal? If we don't have chickpeas, we have uh, another dish to, as an appetizer. But it's, it, no, it's a big deal. They talk about it for days. Just fixated. And it's interesting because, I mean, there's all kinds of, like you said, the shortages or the inconsistencies of supply, given the, given the circumstances. I know, you know, for example, the baking craze of, that struck uh, quarantined America. And so flour and other baking supplies can be hard to, to come by. I wouldn't have thought of chickpeas as being a part of that, you know, production chain, I guess, that's, that's been hit by this. But it must be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because they've got a very specific dish in mind. And I guess like for them, it's, it's something so valued that it's something they want to orient their, their, their schedule around, particularly Ramadan. Uh, I mean, I, I don't get it. I mean, it's, when it's there, it's great. Cool. 
But if it's not there, like, who cares? You, you say that, but you also said a bit earlier that, and I like this idea too, you're not a foodie, but you're picky. Yeah, yeah, and I can't explain that. Um, but yeah, it's it's strange. Um, me, I'm a big time outlier in, in the South Asian community for not liking uh, rice dishes that much. Um, but there's no consistency, right? So we had chili con carne the other night and I had the rice, it was great. So there's no logic behind my position, right. um, but it is a source of shame for my family. So my family's from Hyderabad, India, and people from Hyderabad, India are a bit, um, you know, some might argue stuck up, others might argue, would call it proud, uh, but Hyderabad is known to be uh, a very sophisticated scene for, for cuisine. Uh, Hyderabad cuisine is famous throughout India. In particular, Hyderabad biryani is the most aspirational um, biryani in, in all the land. Uh, and it's a, it's a rice, rice dish, as you know. So I'm this weird outlier of being somebody who's from Hyderabad, India, who doesn't like Hyderabad biryani. Right, someone from Naples who doesn't like pizza, essentially. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, give me well, pizza any day, yeah. <laughs> Switch places, yeah, exactly. That's interesting. So this, this, is, this is funny. I like, you know, the idea of something as simple that you've looked forward to as McDonald's suddenly, you know, tasting delicious. And yeah. uh, as you said, you've told me what you don't like. I think it's almost as important to know what you don't like as what you do like. But you know, the sort of traditional rice dishes and then and then even watching others, it seems, in your household. And you're, as you said, there are many people there now uh, close together, which is great. It sounds like a family together at this moment. But even seeing them sort of have their own food wishes, right, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's just, it's just this moment in time in Ramadan where everyone becomes like, you know, if I'm giving up food and drink for 16, 17 hours a day, there better be a damn good meal at the end of the day, you know, which is fair. I think, you know, as, as this month ends in a couple of days, then I would imagine those, those things relax. Um, I'm looking forward to like, so because, because you're fasting so long, I alluded to this earlier, like diet discipline isn't there. But, you know, when Ramadan's over in a couple of days, I won't have that excuse. I'm kind of in a way looking forward to it so I can, I can be a bit more disciplined um, because I kind of like let myself off the hook, if you like, in Ramadan where, you know, if you're starving 16 hours a day and there's no water as well, you know, you're going to indulge. So this, this raises another question for me, I guess, because we're in quarantine and because, you know, most of us, if we... Um, Again, most, certainly not all, but most of us are more constrained now and where we can go and when and how, um, and therefore our surroundings have been very much the same probably for this entire um, period. How do you think it'll be different when it lifts? Because people won't leave, right? Like you won't suddenly change your lifestyle. Just this one aspect will be different. What, what do you think that's going to be like? So you mean like what the coloring experience will be like once quarantine is over? Kind of the diet, the the diet, the culinary. Because you're because like you said, food is so central now to your day and your structure, and so we're ripping away this piece of structure, this framework, so to speak, of your day, yeah. this time period. And but now, but nothing else will really change, right? Just sort of the regulation around your time, which it's funny because it's it's very it's hyper regulated in a certain sense. But you've also said that means you don't need to have diet discipline. So when you invert those, how does that, you know, less, for example, structure around the timing of meals? How does that, do you think, how might you speculate that that will sort of impact your future um, diet discipline? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think diet discipline might, might be more tightly infused with ingredients. 
the reason I say that, and I haven't, I haven't, that's, it's a good question because I don't have a firm answer, but I would think that in this quarantine or not quarantine, right, this whole episode's taught us that you got to be really careful about, about what comes into your home and by extension, like what, what goes into yourself. So you, you've probably done the same where anytime you get a grocery um, delivered, um, you know, there's a lot of cleaning of, of, the, of the cans, of the packages before we even like bring it to the kitchen. And I would think that that would continue, uh, particularly if there's no vaccine, where you, you, you're probably less likely to go out to a restaurant because, you know, the close proximity, et cetera. And you don't know what the ingredients they're using. And then you don't know the, you know, the conditions in, in, in the kitchen. Yep. And so that's why I'm thinking like diet discipline might be more tightly infused with ingredients. So if you can control the ingredients, control the cooking and, and use that as a form to, 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 to have, so still indulge and have you know, tasty stuff, but maybe rather than, you know, 10 grams of sugar, there's three, right. But you're still winning. It, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, when you frame it that way, the, that was what I was thinking of as sort of, you know, the unchanging conditions. Well, actually, there's very controlled conditions. You know, the fact that you said you're in your own home, you, you know, it like the back of your hand, the people who are there, you, you see when they don't wash their hands. So unlike yeah. in a restaurant yeah. where you don't, you know, you're trusted, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in a city like New York, where restaurants cram so many people into such a small space. Um, and it's a real shame to see the restaurant industry suffer this way for, for the business owners, for, for, for patrons too. But it's just not something I can see from a food quality or space perspective that has kind of come, even once quarantine is lifted, that people feel comfortable indulging anytime soon. I think that's right. I, I don't know if you're familiar with David Chang and the whole Momofuku industry. He's, a, I guess, a celebrity chef, but he's a, a real chef and restaurateur. And they had to close a few of their locations. Um, he had one in D.C. and I think he closed one in New York, merged it together. But something that he said on his own podcast was essentially like the restaurant industry is has to be has to fundamentally change going forward. Yeah, and I wonder if that means more franchising, right? Are the are the franchises the brands that survive? I, I don't know. I, I'm curious if it's that. I'm curious if it's the delivery model of meals, right? Yeah. Because because if you were a restaurant that needed to have X number of covers per night at tables and you were about the dining experience, well, of course, when you are unable to, to provide that, it's all, people actually don't even necessarily want your food at that point, right? It's not just yeah. the food versus who's surviving right now. Probably, and I've seen a lot of Domino's pizza commercials. Um, yeah. You know, hopefully one day a sponsor since uh, we've written on <laughs> McDonald's. But, you know, like this idea that all these restaurants in my local area have have flipped and most of them are franchises, but a lot of them have sort of flipped their model to be more delivery, takeout, um, sort of family packaged meals, right? But, but prepared, you know, as opposed to, yeah. so, they've, so they've done this interesting lift of the quality that one might technically get if they, you know, went and bought a family pack of something, Hungry Man dinners or something that was mostly prepared at a grocery store and done all that work for the family. And done it at a pretty reasonable price. I, you know, I'm seeing these price points, and as we break it down, it's less than what you would spend to sit in a restaurant and eat it, and you know, reasonable enough that you would say, "Yeah, we can skip this trip to the grocery store and the time we take to cook it, and and not cook it as well necessarily." Yeah, yeah. And then the flip side of that might be that also you might also see uh, Blue Apron these meal kits also because they take the the pain out of 
of purchasing and, and ratioing. Yeah. That's even a verb. The portioning and ratioing and yeah. And then I think like you said, then making it not quite gamifying, but of just the way they lay out the steps such that you don't have to do that work now. You you are sort of being told, here's how you're doing it. You get your but also being coached that you're doing it and then you you get to eat it. Yeah, who knows? I, I mean, yeah, yeah, who knows where this ends up? That's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, let's hope we get through it. Most of us, many, many, many of us safely, but it's uh, yeah, it fundamentally th- different. Yeah. It's, I mean, did you see the story about, um, was it DoorDash? This guy in a pizza joint finds that he makes money by buying his pizzas from DoorDash rather than selling them. Did wow. No. Oh, I, I'll send it to you afterwards. I think the story was, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing, but this guy's in, I think it was an independent pizzeria and he was selling his pizzas at, at $16. No, he's selling his pizza at $24, but DoorDash was selling for 16 or something. Anyway, there's an arbitrage opportunity. I'm doing such a bad job of explaining this. There's an arbitrage opportunity where it was lucrative for him to buy his own pizzas from DoorDash because DoorDash was setting prices so low in order to acquire lots of customers to build scale. So they were paying the difference, essentially. They were essentially paying yep. him for his $8, $8 to sell that pizza back to him for less. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's because, incredible. Because scale is all that matters and profitability doesn't matter in, in, this, in this environment that we live in. So they lose money on his pizzas, but they're hoping that they're making money off of some other delivery place down the street with different yeah. margins. Yes. And I would also think acquiring customers and the lifetime value of the customer would be profitable for them. I see. So it may not even be in this moment, but. Yeah. 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 I think that was the, that was the idea. And then you've seen um, Uber and uh, Grubhub are trying to combine. Yes. So, so that one's interesting because I get why they were trying to do that. Um, And they're going to be allowed to, I think, I don't see regulators getting in the way of that. Um, but in some markets like New York, they might end up with something like an 80% market share. Wow. Which is not great for independent restaurants that survive, and it's not great for consumers either. That's a lot of market power. Because um, even if they have a 20% market share in San Francisco, if you live in New York, that doesn't mean anything to you. Right. Yeah, your, your existence, the options available to you are dictated then by what they decide. They want to. It's funny. I mean, when mobs used to squeeze people out of neighborhoods, that was a problem. But now it's a corporation that that may, you don't want to pay your licensing fee or what have you, and they just may just leave you out of the algorithm. Yeah, you can stay open, but essentially you'll be, you'll be buried. You'll be hidden to the world. Yeah. There's all sorts of shady things. Did you see the other story about, I think, I can't remember, it might have been DoorDash, but for company, so sorry, for customers who don't want to order on DoorDash or Postmates, um, they'll Google their favorite restaurant and they'll find a number and they, well, they'll call instead of going through DoorDash. But that number is somehow programmed to recognize that the order should be placed through Grub, uh, Grubhub or Postmates. And so Grubhub, Postmates, DoorDash, et cetera, get the credit anyway. There's wow. some kind of SEO manipulation. So it's really choking um, in independent restaurants. Unless they cave and commit to use the platform. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it really makes you wonder how sustainable some of those you know, once, especially like you said, big tech or whoever gets involved, how sustainable it will be for certain industries, certainly probably in certain areas. Uh, but I mean, maybe you'll have to accept that um, Papa John's will run New York one day. And th- there was a time people talk about it fondly when there used to be other pizzas in New York, but 
This is a this is a New York pizza now. Yeah. Well, New York's a funny market, right? In the sense that you know New York pizza are so synonymous. But um, the fact that Domino's is is doing well in New York, like hats off to them. But that's not something I I, I foresaw, particularly because I don't think the other big pizza brands, if it's Little Caesars, Pizza Hut, or um, or Papa John's, yeah. have made similar inroads in what is a very competitive market. I think that's right. Like you said, where there there's where there's every other corner probably a pizza independent pizza place. How did these other things survive? But I don't know. Is the quality better, or is it really just a pricing issue at scale and whatnot? Yeah, or, del- or maybe like in, maybe in Domino's case, it's the fact that they've mastered delivery. Hmm. I think we I think we plugged them enough now, so they should sponsor you. <laughs> That's the goal, really. Is yeah, this is why I need the business school connections. Dan Lady you, and now suddenly I'm lined up for a big big deal. Yeah, well, the former CEO, if I'm not mistaken, went to the same business school that me and Dan went to. Oh, okay. But I think he stepped down. I'd have to check. <laughs> That's great. Um, so we uh we were talking, we were warming up a little bit uh before, like you said before food and stuff and something you were telling me about is your, I guess your, do you, how do you consider it? Your, your comedic writing career? Cause that's how you identify in the op-ed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I feel like I've made progress, but not as much as I'd like to. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough gig in the sense that it's really competitive. And so to get published by a reputable paper is, especially for like, comedy work. So, if you're a freelance journalist, getting published in New York Times is hard enough. Um, but then if you're trying to write comedy on top of that, um, it's, it's really Most places don't take satire. So to convince a, an editor that you have a satire that's timely and, and worthy of publication is, I found, it, if I, I found it to be tough. Even when I've had some ideas which I think, like, this is a huge home run idea, like, nope, don't want it. Um, but I'm hopeful because... Um, I've had some TV slash video work, which is which kind of went viral early in the year. So I'm hoping if there's a few more of those type of hits, then then it'd be easier to to do more of this. Um, but who knows? I'm also hopeful that we live in an era where there's so much streaming and demand for content that that would also mean demand for writing. But I don't know if that is necessarily the case. So what, what style, I guess, what, what's the genesis of you writing comedy? I'm curious now about this. I didn't ask you your backstory. We asked you what you were doing now, but how did you arrive at this passion or this understanding or this knowledge? So, so it's, actually, it's actually tied to my time in business school where um, I was always the class clown and, and had a bunch of friends, including Dan, suggest that, you know, that I, I could do this. And I'd always felt inclined to do it, but I never took it seriously because I'm British and in Britain, any ambition is beaten out of you, if not by your family, then by society. And so I you know, thought it's not going to work out for me. Um, but business school kind of really gave me the confidence to give it a shot. It didn't necessarily mean I thought I was going to hit a home run and, and achieve my goals, but you've got to be in it to win it, right? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, as, as Michael Scott quoted Wayne Gretzky in, uh, in one of the uh, episodes of The Office. Um, so after school in Chicago, I moved to New York, enrolled in, uh, in at the UCB comedy school and wrote sketches, which frankly weren't that great. Um, but one of them was really good. Um, and that was, and I, I think this is thing like, this is a British person to me. I don't like to say, Oh, look at my work. It's great. Most of it eh, it's probably average, but this was really good. 
it was Lord Voldemort gets a makeover by appearing on Queer Eye. <laughs> and I, the whole, from start to finish, it, was, it just worked, right? Uh, and and the, end, uh, the ending line was something like, Tan France gives a, a little corgi to Lord Voldemort and he goes to Lord Voldemort, what would you call, what would you call her? And Voldemort goes, uh, well, since she's a bitch, I'll call her Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, and and that's how that's how we ended. So I was pretty chuffed with that piece, uh, and that gave me a bit more confidence to keep to keep going. So I took more classes, um, and then I just got lucky where I, I submitted that sketch to an editor who, who loved it and agreed to publish it, um, and then challenged me to keep writing political satire, which we just started to do more and more of, uh, and started to hone my skills in that to the point where I could then try to get my political satire writing in front of people who are in the video space and get them to commission my work. Um, and then, you know, let's, let's see how, where that ends up. But it's funny because I've written a lot for newspapers, but doing just one video is so much more impactful in terms of the people you can reach. Even if you write for the most reputable newspapers in the world, I think as a consumer, having to read something, it feels like a more of a lift than a video. And also from a communication of an entertainment perspective, a video just sells better than, than, than print. Right. Um, so I'd like to do more video, but you know, that just depends on being commissioned. So that's, uh, you, this is helpful. You're talking about sort of where it's gone in political satire, as you said, sort of winds up being your, seems like your sweet spot. And you talked a little about your project, um, your stage project. And so I guess you also write for, for an audience. Is that, is that what um, America First is? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I created and host a late night talk show called America First. Um, before New York went on lockdown, we did it at the UCB Theatre. Um, and the premise of the show is to use comedy to explore how other countries have solved the issues that we Americans are still dealing with, um, particularly uh, focused on, um, on economic issues, because that's something that I'm a bit better versed in. I did econ undergrad. I, uh, I worked in finance. I have an MBA. So that's a familiar territory. And there's no shortage of material um, to mine. So we did a show on why rent in Tokyo is, is so much cheaper than New York. Um, and it's not to do with uh, building regulations, the opposite. It's, uh, it's to do with uh, deregulation. So Tokyo deregulated the, deregulated the market. It made it easier to expand supply. And that made a housing price stable despite a rising population. Uh, so we tell that story through comedy, right? So... So for example, um, one of the issues that you have here in the United States is NIMBYism. So for the uninitiated, NIMBYism, it, so NIMBY stands for not in my backyard, but it refers to grassroots efforts to maintain the status quo by opposing new building construction or you know, renovating a building to increase capacity. Um, and it can be as simple as a petition, it can be as aggressive as a lawsuit, but NIMBY, NIMBY efforts often prevail which benefits those who benefit from the status quo. Uh, so when we did the show, we explained that NIMBY stands for not in my backyard. And then we suggested that, you know, Roger Stone thinks it stands for Nixon is my Beyonce. And, uh, and that went really well because we had um, somebody who's very skilled at Photoshop get a picture of Beyonce and replace her face with Richard Nixon. Oh, so there's some good sight gags going along with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of thing we go for. Uh, and we had another joke, which was, you know, homelessness has increased in New York for, by 60% over the last decade. 
a number that Bill de Blasio didn't believe because according to his approval ratings, there's no such thing as high as a number of 60%. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, you, very timely with your jokes too. Yeah, thank you. So, <laughs> so it's that kind of material, right? You take a serious topic, you punch it up with jokes to help communicate it. And then we had a, a guest on, um, a very talented author and columnist called Teru Clavel, an American who has written a book about her experiences as a mother in Japan and China. And although her expertise in education, um, we talked to her about living in, in Tokyo versus living in, in New York and you know, experience renting in both cities. So I bring that up because we try to, on the show, offer a first-hand perspective. You know, I live in New York. It's you know, the greatest city in the world, but my experiences in Tokyo are limited to the week I spent there, uh, which makes me not really qualified to comment on life in Tokyo. Right. Um, and the other thing we try to do is try to end the show on a really silly note. So we did a show on uh, why cell phone bills in Israel are so much cheaper than here in the United States. And we did the whole deep dive with comedy and we thought we we're going to end the message and the show on a, with that message in a very simple form. So we rewrote telephone by Lady Gaga and we rewrote it to, to reflect the messages from Israel, which was increase more competition to the market, give you spectrum licenses and, and so we had, you know, Lady Gaga and Beyonce, so to speak. We actually were lucky. We got a Broadway actress to play, uh, to play Beyonce. Jeez. And she's phenomenally talented. Um, and yeah, it's, it's dumb stuff like that. The dumber, the better. Like you said, it, it, high and low, high meets low. The, uh, the, the bridge is the gap between, as you said, the MBA and the, and the finance background. And like you said, communicating it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe the one thing I should also mention, this is something maybe I shouldn't be proud of. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to get this published. No one's taken a bite yet, but I wrote a sketch about quarantine. Um, not necessarily quarantine, but coronavirus, sorry. Um, so it's, it's Pitbull and he's singing and suddenly he gets heckled by the coronavirus who wants, who's challenging him for the title of Mr. Worldwide. There's <laughs> this whole back and forth between Pitbull and the coronavirus. And it, it ends with, um, with Pitbull ignoring coronavirus, playing his music and coronavirus being threatened by that because Pitbull's music is the best way to enforce social distancing because the crowd is <laughs> This is I, I don't know why no one's taking a, like you said, no, no one's taking a bite of that one, jeez. No, no, it's very frustrating. So I might, I might try to bring the show back in, uh, on, on a web form while New York's still shut down. And if, if I do, I'll try to find a way to get that acted out somehow. I haven't figured out staging or acting, but mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah, that's something to work on. This is like that is like Super Bowl ad uh, ad quality uh, quality star power and timeliness and that that would be awesome to see. Yeah, yeah. I'll email I'll email it to you after after this after this is over. Okay. Well, that's a great note. To I actually teared up a little bit. That was pretty funny. Um, but and actually, you know, a huge pleasure talking to you. Uh, just hearing your obviously your experiences, and then I really came for the jokes. Like I said, Dan, yeah. <laughs> once I saw a com- com- comedy writer, I was like, oh, what's this? <laughs> yeah, well, I hope I didn't under-deliver on that. No, no, it was, this was excellent. Um, and I hope you and your family obviously enjoy uh, the, the, I guess you said Sunday is the, is the end Sunday's of the Sunday's Eid, yeah. A couple of months ago. Okay, yep. So. yep, yep, yep. We made it. Great. So maybe you have a great celebration together, and um, hopefully it's not the last time we chat. Yes, yes, I'd love to be back on if you'll have me, uh, but thanks for having me on on this occasion. Really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely, likewise. Thank you. Take care. All right, cheers.
This brings us to the end of another episode of What's Eating You. I want to thank my guest, Ali Asghar, for welcoming us into his virtual dining room and taking us through the experience of Ramadan during COVID-19, as well as pulling back the curtain into the America First Writer's Room. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. <laughs>